people that are leery of anarchy, I, I understand uh, not being comfortable with this brave new world, but let's just try to agree on the worst excesses of the state first and agree to put those out, and then we see where we can go next. And next, and maybe we see we can go further and further and increase freedom and increase our prosperity and reduce the, the damage the state does to us. And we'll see eventually that less and less of it's necessary to what we're, we think is necessary. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, in a conversation that is being recorded on the 25th of June, 2019, at least here on this side of the dateline. And today we're talking to an old friend, an old, 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 old guest of the Corbett Report, specifically from Corbett Report Radio 99, which I'm sure you all remember from seven years ago now, uh, where we talked about against intellectual property with Stefan Kinsella, who is available at StefanKinsella.com. I will, of course, put the link in the show notes. Um, but for those who might not remember that conversation, long story short, Stefan Kinsella is an attorney and libertarian writer in Houston. He is founder and executive editor of Libertarian Papers, founder and director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom, a member of the Editorial Board of Reason Papers, a member of the Editorial Advisory Board of the Molinari Review, member of the Advi- I could go on and on and on, but I'll let you read through the about page on his website uh, for yourself. Perhaps more to the point, he's a registered patent attorney and former adjunct professor at South Texas College of Law, who has published numerous articles and books on IP law, international law, and the application of libertarian principles to legal topics. Stefan Kinsella, thank you for joining us on the program today. Glad to be here. All right, so um, let's get the bona fides on the record for today's conversation. As I say, we have talked in the past about your work on intellectual property. If people do not know about your work against intellectual property, they really should check it out. I always recommend the Kinsella on Liberty podcast as a great conversation, an ongoing conversation where you go over the same topics over and over and over and over. But it is necessary because so many people still believe in the validity of intellectual property. So I'll direct people to your work on that issue and our previous conversation on that issue. But today we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about law and law without the state. Is such a thing even possible? Let's start by getting your bona fides on the record. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your legal background? Well, sure. I uh, have a law degree from uh, Louisiana State University and uh, a master's in international law from uh, King's College London. And I practiced at large law firms and been in-house counsel and have published a, a large number of uh, legal articles and even books. I have a book coming out on international investment law uh, in September from Oxford um, University Press. So I've, I've published a lot, I've spoken a lot, and uh, yeah, I've been fascinated by legal theory and law as a lawyer and as a, a student of the law and a, a libertarian and a, you know interested in philosophy of law for, for over two decades. All right, so let's start Coming right down to brass tacks, as people who watch The Corporate Report will know, recently I was talking about language as a weapon and how important it is to define our terms before we launch into any conversation so that we have that ground basis so that we know what we're talking about. So the real question to open today's conversation is, what is the law? Well, and that's a really good question. In fact, the word law, if you think about the word law, it's used in many different uh, contexts, right? So we'll, we talk about um, moral law or the law of gravity. So we talk about physics laws. 
uh, in economics, we talk about the laws of economics, like the law of supply and demand. Um, and in the what you could call the legal law, the law we're used to using the word law for, we, we basically mean uh, a body of rules that prescribe what human behavior is permitted or compelled uh, and enforced by some kind of social uh, punishment or force. In today's system, we think of law – legal law as being the set of rules announced by a legislature of a government or of a state. This is the way people are used to thinking of law. Law didn't really originate that way, and that's a fairly recent way of thinking about law. Um, it's been, I would say, corrupted and distorted and monopolized by the government or by the state in the last 100, 200 years to, to the point where everyone, even people in the government, you know, everyone has this sort of misconception of law as, think, as being um, a statement of um, an issuance of decrees by a sovereign, basically by the legislature or the government, um, that tells you what is wrong and right, what's permitted, what's not permitted. So we think now of today of law as what's written down in the books, announced by a legislature, and what you're told you can do. So we're, we think of law now as rules announced by the government, but that is not the original concept of law, and it's not the essence of law. Now, let's dwell on that for a moment, because this is, I think, the first mental obstacle that we come to um, when we talk about the subject of the possibility of law without the state. Um, if law and the state and pronouncements of a legislature are wedded in people's minds, then obviously this is some sort of contradiction in terms. How can you have law without the state if the state is what gives law? So when and how did this confusion begin to arise? What are the legal traditions that law came from, and then how did it get corrupted by this idea? Right, and I, so I am I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practicing attorney, and I'm a fairly conventional guy in the regular world, but my views are kind of out there, uh, as maybe some of yours are. I'm a libertarian, and I've come to believe that the state is illegitimate, so I am an anarchist. Uh, so my views are colored by that, or maybe they developed along these lines, but so I'll try to put it in terms that you know more regular people can understand the, the kind of conversation I have, but law is basically originally a set of rules that help us live together because we live in a world where we can have conflict or, or disputes because we live in a world of scarce resources. And so something called property rights emerges because of this. Like we say that this guy owns this piece of land or this house or this sheep or whatever or his own body even. And so over time, this body of rules emerges when people have a conflict or a dispute. And then you have theft. People take each other's things, or there's a dispute over where the property lines are. So over time, these systems emerge, and they go to courts, or they go to a respected decision maker like in a town who can arbitrate or hear the case. And over time, the results of these rulings result in the body of law, and this is what happened in history. Uh, basically, in the Roman law, let's say in the say from uh, 500 BC to 580, roughly that 1,000-year Reich or period, um, a body of Roman law emerged from jur uh, jurists and arbitrators and legal scholars and judges hearing decisions, uh, hearing cases that were disputes between people, and making decisions and gradually developing the law. This body of law became known as the Roman law, which later influenced the, the, the European law, which we have now, which is called the civil law. And then in England, uh, sometime later, the English common law developed in a similar way with 
with basically courts and judges deciding disputes and gradually developing a body of rules. So you have this body of rules emerge, which basically you can think of as property rights because all law is property rights. So law emerges as a practical response to the possibility of conflict among people combined with their desire to live among each other as peacefully and harmoniously as possible, to cooperate, to trade, to know who owns what, to know which property is owned by whom, etc. So that's what law is. Um, over time, because you have states in control and you have kings and sovereigns and monarchs, um, they make exceptions. They, they make exceptions for themselves. They start monopolizing things. Um, there's actually a really good article on this uh, from the Review of Austrian Economics. It's on HansHoppe.com. It's by Hans Hermann Hoppe, and it's called Banking, Nation States, and I forget the subtitle. But he traces out the, the process by which the government slowly monopolizes different facets of life to 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 gain more control over what people do and to entrench its own control. And it so it basically takes over different institutions of life. Um, it takes over the institution of communication, for example. Uh, we see that even now with the internet, the government trying to do that. Um, but we see that with the mail service, for example, uh, and the FCC controlling the airwaves, right? Um, it takes over uh, transportation, like the roads. Ro everyone thinks of roads as public. Uh, in some countries, it takes over medical care and health care, right? Most people think of health care as a government-provided service now. It takes over money. Which is a very crucial thing. The, the government gradually monopolizes money. All these things are private institutions at first: healthcare, roads, uh, communication, uh, transportation, travel, uh, and money emerged like as gold. And the government slowly takes over these things. And of course, it takes over law too. It becomes it, it appoints official courts. It starts having legislatures who can change what the law is. One benefit of having a court system is that even if they're government courts, the primary function of law and the primary function of judges is thought to be to do justice. In a given case, when two or more people come before you and they have a dispute, and they need a resolution, the judge tries to do justice. He doesn't always get it right, but he at least looks at what's been done before. He looks at the body of rules that everyone's relied upon. He takes evidence and testimony from witnesses, and he tries to make a decision, or maybe the jury does it. But basically you have a decisional tribunal that makes this decision, and the, the point is that the role of a judge is to do justice. That's where the word judge comes from, to a judge, to do justice. Um, the whole point of law is to do justice, to give someone what they deserve to make the right decision. Same thing in the Roman law and in any court system. But – over time, when you have more and more statutes or legislation become law, then they start overwhelming the body of private law that was developed in this previous way that was aimed at trying to reach justice, and it becomes just what the government writes down. Um, now, Americans, for example, are used to – they're proud of having their written constitution. Now, that was a novel thing at the time. The, there's something called the English Constitution, which was unwritten rules of how the government worked together. The U.S. wrote it down. There are some benefits to that. There are some benefits to writing down the law in a code like the civil codes in Europe. But when you start seeing law as whatever is decreed by the government, over time, people start thinking of law as whatever the government says you should do, and they become more subservient, more docile, and then they will bow down and accept um, – 
taxes and regulations that they never would have accepted from a judge in a in a case. Um, and so, it, it in a way, it's like democracy. Democracy sounds good, but the government is able to tax people more because they can tell people don't complain because after all, you're the government. You got to vote. So by giving people these sort of meaningless paper rights, they're able to do more to them. And the same thing is with legislation. Uh, the, the government by legislation can say, well, it's a law that you have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act, or you have to uh, be conscripted for a war, or you have to pay your taxes, or, or you have to comply with the federal uh, mail services monopoly or any number of or, – or, or marijuana, you know, anti-drug laws, things like that. All these things are possible only with legislation. They, they're almost inconceivable. Um, to have emerged from a mere judge deciding a dispute between two actual parties. So over time, the emergence of democracy, as Hans-Hermann Hoppe calls it, uh, democratic lawmaking. So what we have now is what I would call lawmaking according to what democracies do. Um, in the older systems, legislation was more of, a, of an occasional thing that interfered with the common law, but it was seen as an intrusion and a special exception. Now it's the dominant form of law, or at least most people think of it. Um, even libertarians and people that are so-called anti-government protesters, you know, like the people that think that the income tax is wrong and not even legal, like in the US, their argument it will be, show me the law. They want you to pull out a statute book and show them the section and title number where the law sh says that it's illegal to, to uh, evade income tax. And by the way, you can do that. But the point is that their first instinct is to ask for a written down something from the Congress. So they're th even their thinking of law is whatever the government decrees. And that has led to the idea that law is not objective, it's not fair, it's just whatever the government says, and therefore we might as well lobby the government through our special interest groups to get the government to push the law in our direction because after all, every other special interest group is going to do that too. So it leads to this mad scramble for a piece of the pie. So basically legislation should be seen, I believe, as an intrusion into the law and as a perversion of law. Law should be seen as the body of legal rules developed in an attempt to let people live together harmoniously, not in just an arbitrarily decreed set of rules issued by um, a democratic legislature. Right. That's an interesting point that you bring up. If only the 16th Amendment was ratified in the right way and did the right thing, then an income tax would be fine. You know, As long as they did the right magic ritual in the corridors of power, then we can accept it as the law. That's, uh, that's an interesting point because even the people who are supposedly going against this are in a way accepting the fundamental premises of the, of the argument. Um, but let's, let's back up a little bit. In that description, you used the, the words private law or private courts to talk about the, the the courts and the operation hearing cases as opposed to the statute law. Um, but in what sense can we use the word private in that case? Because clearly courts throughout history have been appointed by kings and queens or lords or people in positions of political authority. And that is supposedly, I would imagine, in most people's minds, what gives these courts their actual authority. Right. Well, so the term private law as I would use it and some would use it, so there would be two different senses. Um, in conventional legal terminology, private law just refers to the body of legal rules 
uh, that apply to private transactions. So you could think of it as contract law, uh, divorce law, marriage law, property law. That's called private law. So it means the body of rules that have been developed to deal with private interactions as opposed to criminal law or public law or administrative law of the state. Um, and those rules that we have even today uh, in, in the Western world, say in, in, in the U.S. and the British colonies, um, and the Commonwealth um, is based upon rules that were developed in the common law um, and are largely just and libertarian. They've been intruded upon and limited by statute. So, for example, the basic rule would be uh, – the basic rule would be contract would be uh, respected and private property rights would be respected, um, and so you could therefore have a loan, and so you could have a promissory note and have a loan, but then the government might say usury is illegal with a statute or with some kind of royal decree. So they will have intrusions onto what you can do, but by and large, the body of private law was actually developed, and even when it's embodied in statute now, you just had the, the legislature of a state um, take the body of legal rules that was developed in a decentralized legal system. True, it was usually government courts, but still, as I said, the, the role of these government courts was to do justice, and so they did develop law law among common sense uh, lines by and large. So you had this body of rules that was codified by scholars, just like private scholars, like law professors or, or, or legal experts like Dicey or Blackstone. And so then the legislature would consult these things, and then they would just uh, have a body of, of legal scholars codify, put put into a code these rules, and then legislate it as law. So it is legislated, but it's basically a restatement of what the private law courts had, had developed. Um, so in the other sense, um, sometimes we anarchists or anti-state people… Think about a private law society, and what we're imagining is a society where the government has receded, and all the law is based upon private interactions uh, by contract between people. So in that case, you, you could imagine um, arbitration. Look, just like in the in, in the West today, in the U.S., let's say, I, I think I've heard statistics saying that there are more private security guards in force than there are policemen, and I think that's probably true. So you could imagine that ratio getting even more and more distorted, and the same thing with, with law. Law is formed in general by people that make decisions for uh, uh, in cases of disputes. That's probably done more often today by arbitration, private arbitration, than by judges uh, because there's so many arbitration agreements in private contracts, and even in states where there are courts… You go to court for a lawsuit, the judge will say, why don't you guys go to arbitration first, and then if you can't resolve it, then you come here. So arbitration happens all the time now, and it does develop law. In fact, in international law, uh, which is a field I've studied a lot, um, you could think of international law as the law that governs between the actors on the international field, which are states, and there's roughly 200 governments or states in the world, right? And those states have no super sovereign over them, no super state over them, except the U.S. tries to be, but theoretically there's no super state over them. Even the United Nations has very little enforcement authority. So you have these 200 roughly equal sovereign states. And on, on an anarchistic field with, with respect to each other. They are in a state of anarchy, and they have contracts among each other, and we call those treaties. And they have arbitration agreements with each other. They go to ICSID or, or – I'm sorry, they go to the United Nations, or they go to different forums to resolve their disputes. Uh, sometimes they settle them by war, but not always. Quite often they, they respect 
treaties, and there's a Latin term called pacta sunt servanda, which means agreements are to be respected, which is one of the leading principles of international law and the one of the leading principles of uh, general principles of law in general. So, law is definitely possible without the state. There are many mainstream treatises on this. We study this. Uh, it's just that people are not used to thinking of law as something that can emerge without the government uh, guiding it or steering it or even creating it. That's right. It is a point that has been made uh, a number of times and needs to be continually drummed into people's heads. Yes, international law is essentially anarchistic law. It is law without a super supranational authority um, dictating the process. Although, actually, that vacuum leaves people, some people, to argue, well, there needs to be some sort of supranational body. We need to set up some sort of international government to run the the uh, to, to calm the anarchy between nations. And there is, I think there is something to that because you say 200 roughly equal actors. <laughs> the United States is not roughly equal to, I don't know, Liberia or whatever when it comes to the international scene. We all know that. We all know that there is a dis wild disparity between the ability of different countries to enforce their, their dictates internationally. Some of that obviously comes down to military might, some of it economic might, some different uh, diplomatic um, machinations as well. But clearly there is a disparity there. And I think that's the kind of, that's the inequality that people would point to. Without without a state, without something over top of everything, there's going to be these natural in, imbalances in what counts as justice. And the U.S. will get its way a thousand times more likely than a small and insignificant nation will get its way, just as in an anarchistic uh, court system the millionaire, the billionaire is going to get off with murder and the small, you know, the, the, the lower class person is going to get thrown in jail at the whim of, at the drop of the hat. Uh, true. And the, uh, the realities of physical ability and bullying uh, can't be erased totally. But the fact that in, on paper, at least, even the U.S., which is the mightiest state in the history of the world, gives lip service to international sovereignty of all the other nations. I mean – you know, the U.S. could uh, – this is going to date this show soon, but you know, with this dispute with Iran recently, the U.S. could have easily bombed or even nuked Iran uh, in response to their shooting down the U.S. drone. But they didn't, and partly the reason they didn't was because of this international community's uneasiness with invading other countries' sovereignty without a, a really good reason, and that's international law uh, in action. And I think international law uh, does – um, look, a lot of it are libertarians are against the United Nations because I think there was a fear in the 50s and 60s, this communist fear, this internationalist ambition, you know, theory of fear of the communist international ambitions, um, and fear of centralization, fear of losing sovereignty, and fear of uh, losing the decentralist aspect of the international system, uh, fear of losing American power, let's say, to the international scene. That's dissipated. I don't think many people are worried anymore that the United Nations is going to absorb the U.S., um, the concerns the other way around. So given that, that, that concern has faded. The existence of the United Nations as a forum for countries to at least potentially go to instead of going to war um, has, I think, only been a good thing. Uh, it's it's bureaucratic, and it's got some socialistic aspects to some of their uh, aspirational treaties and UN declarations and things like the Declaration on Human Rights, which has all kind of socialistic things in it. But basically, the idea of having 
some kind of uh, you know people have ambassadors with each other they have the ability to settle disputes in a neutral forum going to the international court of justice um, or something like that i think that can't be a horrible thing anything that reduces or prevents uh, the the immediate resort to war or bellicosity uh, can only be a good thing so um and all this is because of this background view of law, this idea that there is a right and wrong, there is a certain sovereignty aspect. And by the way, not only is there anarchy between the 200 states of the world, um, there is, in a sense, anarchy within each state. This is one of the most fascinating articles. Um, it was in one of the early issues of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, I think 1977, by Alfred Cousin. And it's called Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? And what he argues there is that – just take, imagine the American federal government, the state. There is no one inside the state telling everyone inside the state to follow the rules that they follow. There's sort of a natural hierarchy within the state itself, which you can see, for example, when you have an independent counsel going after Trump, and Trump is afraid to fire him, and you know Bill Clinton was impeached, and Richard Nixon was forced out of office. Right, and then there's a threat of criminal prosecution of someone by this branch doing that or contempt of Congress. You have all these internal rules that are followed within the state, but there's no super state above them that forces them to follow it. So the state follows a type of non-anarchistic rule that governs the actions of its own internal actors, which proves, according to Kazan, that uh, anarchy is not – is never – it never really exists, and that an, an oh, I'm sorry, an anarchistic society exists and is always possible. The question is, what kind of anarchy do you want? So you can have the anarchy that exists within a state and that constitutes a state, which is why we use the word constitution because it constitutes the state itself, um, and it allows it to be basically an illegal anarchy or a criminal anarchy. Or you can have private anarchy, which we call a private law society, where people uh, relate to each other primarily by contract and consent and voluntary interactions and trade and peace. Um, so anarchy is definitely possible. The only the question is what kind of anarchy do you want? And we libertarians are in favor of a libertarian anarchy. Right. Well, I should note that I couldn't disagree more strongly on the benign nature of the United Nations. Um, certainly having diplomatic channels to talk to each other is right. on the whole a good thing. But the United Nations as a body and its actual history and the way it was set up and the reasons it was set up and the Charter of Human Rights and all of those things yep, are yep. anathema to anyone promoting human liberty. So I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't I, disagree more strongly that the United I, Nations is a good example. I can't, I can't really disagree too strongly with that. Uh, I just uh, my antipathy to the UN has has uh, uh, has abated, and I just don't. It's not the biggest enemy I see on my list. Uh, I just don't see uh, a one-world government as the looming threat. Or if it is, it's because of the United States, not the United Nations. But they are in bed with each right. other, and the right. UN is in New York. So uh, yeah, I'm not going to really defend the UN. Okay. Well, let's let's bring this back down from the international geopolitical level back to something that people would have more of a day-to-day -day concern with. How does this function? How would a law without the state function in day-to-day -day life? And when you were talking earlier, you divided, for example, the, the private contract law model versus the statutory law model. And you were talking in that group, you, you included criminal law. And so I'm trying to conceptualize this in a way that makes sense to the average person out there. Are you talking about something like the O.J. Simpson murder case? Criminal law, he gets off and he, they, they don't convict him, but civil, he loses the civil case and a $25 million verdict from the jury. 
Um, is that is that the recourse people would have in law without the state to say a murder trial or something like this? We can get them in that punitive damages sort of way. What? How would police and and right. and actual you know restitution punishment? How would that function without a state enforcement agency? Well, so opinions, of course, vary on this. I can tell you sort of my view and, and what uh, the predominant uh, view about this is. Um, the current system is heavily distorted by the state model. Um, in the OJ case is a good example. There's two parallel systems. There's the private law system. You could think of the civil trial, which uh, which was a question of did was he liable for damages to the to, to the victims, and and the jury said he was. Now in that case, because it's a, a civil a civil trial, the standard of proof is uh, just preponderance of the evidence. Like what's more likely? Did, is it more likely than not that he did it or not? And the jury believed it was more likely, and I think most people do. Um, in, in the criminal trial, uh, the rule is you have to – the standard of proof is um, – um, and most people say the burden of proof, but the burden of proof is just who has the burden of proof. It means a standard of proof. The standard of proof is um, beyond a reasonable doubt, let's say, which is very hard to prove. You basically have to have no doubt whatsoever, um, and libertarians, we basically think that's an appropriate rule because it's the government – Trying to harm someone and basically kill them or put them in prison, um, so they have a very high burden to prove. So the, they should have to prove their case with a high standard of proof. So that's why you had the mismatch in that case. But most libertarian legal theorists and anarchist theorists, um, and drawing upon history as well, there have been periods of time where there have been roughly anarchist systems for hundreds of years. I think in Iceland and in the, even in Ireland and other places where it was roughly an anarchist system. Um, most people think there wouldn't be two different systems. You wouldn't have a criminal system. In fact, in today's criminal system, it's if you if you hear about these cases like the people versus O.J. Simpson or the state of California. So the victim is allegedly the state, which is why if he would have if we would have been, would have been convicted, he wouldn't have paid damages. He would have just gone to prison, which. The taxpayers would have had to pay for her anyway, so it doesn't really do any good. It do, it might deter crime, it might uh, it might uh, incapacitate some people and prevent them from committing other crime, but it's not really a solution for the victims, which is what civil trials are for. So most people think that you would only have one trial, and the question is, would it be a criminal trial and no civil trial, or would it be the other way around? And I believe, and most people believe, that you would basically have. Uh, a civil system with a restitution-based um, um, uh, goal. So when someone commits a harm against someone, then they would get hauled off into some kind of private tribunal, or it would be held in absentia if they refused to cooperate, right? And there would be a decision made as to whether they had done it and whether they owe any kind of monetary damages, and they would be given an opportunity to pay that or to work it off, and to and then they could integrate themselves back into society after. Confessing, apologizing, paying their debt back to the victim as best they could. So in that way, you could at least see some kind of rehabilitation aspect of a private law system, a restitution-based system. Uh, now, in some cases, it's true. Some people would be just so uh, so evil and so dangerous that restitution wouldn't be an option, and that's really not what the community wants. If you have a serial killer running around, you know, at some point, these people have to be outcast. 
or even ex ex executed. Um, I think that would be reserved to very rare cases. I think I heard Michael Malice on his show recently interviewing um, – uh, the mother of uh, Ross Ulbricht, who's in prison for the the Silk Road stuff. Uh, I think Lynn Ulbricht is her name, and I think he had some observation I'd never heard before. Someone had said that um, the only people that you actually put, because prison is such a horrible environment, right? It makes people worse. It, it people get raped, they get killed, uh, they come out more hardened criminals. The idea is that the only people you really want to put in prison are people that you should never let out. And I think that's a good idea. It's like someone commits a, a white-collar crime or some fairly low-level crime. Why should we be paying them, paying fifty thousand, a hundred thousand dollars a year to put them in prison to make them worse off, to make society worse off? It'd be better if we could somehow have a restitution-based system. So I do think that would be the model. Now, of course, in a free society, I also believe that we would have far fewer criminal laws. You wouldn't have tax evasion or marijuana sale things like they, they wouldn't be illegal so there'd be far fewer things you'd be in prison for anyway or, or, or convicted of a crime for um and i think we'd be a much richer society so there'd be less need to i mean why would you have to rob or steal if you can just go get charity and live live fine or have a robot help i mean i, I think a lot of these problems would vanish uh, naturally in a free, rich, prosperous society, um, and the very tiny amount of crime that remained could be handled with private security guards. Most people would have to have insurance because they would want it because you don't have unlimited liability, and probably most areas would require that. So you're not going to be able to go into business with someone or live in their neighborhood unless you can prove you have insurance, and the insurance company would be liable to you if you had, say, someone broke into your house or harmed you, and therefore they would have an incentive to have adequate security arrangements to keep you from being robbed, let's say, for example. So the idea is you would have insurance companies would of different uh, people and agency areas would have their own security arrangements to lower property theft, and that would also play a role in… Um, like you know, uh, some region might not allow you to have a nuclear bomb because it's too dangerous because the liability is too much. So a lot of the 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 scenarios that scare people about what might happen if there's say no law, no government law, uh, would probably be easily handled by private interactions, by insurance regulations, um, and people that refuse to cooperate would tend to be ostracized. They wouldn't be able to uh, get a job. They wouldn't be able to move anywhere. And so there would be a heavy social cost to pay for not complying with a, a tribunal decision, a restitution award, um, requirements to respect people's property rights, things like that. There's a lot of detailed writing on this, which is interesting, by Hoppe, Bob Murphy, the Tannehills, um, um, uh, Randy Barnett, David Friedman, and others. Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe has a nice bibliography about this on his website. If you go to HansHoppe.com, H-O-P-P-E, uh, he has an anarcho-capitalist bibliography, which collects a lot of the stuff that um, goes into more detail on these matters. But anyway, that's kind of um, the end of what my comment was going to be about um, – all right, what you just said is a standard response. I've heard it from other people, Hop and uh, Murphy and others who've talked about this subject. But what you've just said, although it sounds reasonable from a certain perspective, sounds like an absolute nightmare to people who do not already buy into the idea of law without the state. It sounds like the ultimate dystopia where if you're too poor, 
you're not going to be able to even live anywhere because you don't have insurance. You're going to be just this wandering hobo who's going to have to live off of scraps on the roadside or something because no one will want you anywhere. You won't be able to go anywhere. It, it, it's a world run by insurance companies is what you're painting here. At least that's the way it's going to be processed by a lot of people. And I, I share some of those misgivings, the way that could concentrate power um, in certain hands. Uh, I understand that. Um the way I think about it is, well, first of all, powers, powers already very concentrated. It's not like it's not like we live in a utopia right now. Um, and basically, what anarchists, what I believe in, and what libertarians believe in is, we we simply believe that it's wrong to hurt other people. That's basically what we believe. We think you should allow people to own their stuff, and you shouldn't hurt them. Uh, that's our basic rule. So you shouldn't commit aggression. Um, and we re we realize that the government, the state, all necessarily always has to commit aggression. So t to me, being an anarchist is not having a prediction about, oh, what's this new brave new world going to look like? Um, I usually give that answer when, when people that oppose anarchy, or the way I look at it, they, they support the state. When they ask me, well, what, well, what would it look like if we get rid of the government that I love? So I try to guess for them, but the government has crowded out so many things. We can't exactly, we can't, we can't say what the what the road system would look like. We can't say exactly what the education system would look like. We have some ideas uh, from the past and from reason and from economics, but we can't say exactly. There's no doubt that the the government's existence has distorted the way things happen. Uh, and if you get rid of the government, we don't have to get rid of it. All in one fell swoop. We can get rid of it one piece at a time. Like we can take the worst parts and slowly get rid of those, because the government to exist always they have to tax people, which means to take their stuff, which is aggression, and put them in jail if they don't comply. So we already have violence happening. We're opposed to that. We don't think it should happen like that. What we should do is try to limit the government's worst excesses or the states. All right. So let's let's get rid of drug laws. Let's let's get rid of incarceration for nonviolent crimes. Um, you know, let's reduce the government's ability to wage in war. Uh, let's reduce government spending to the bare necessities. Um, you know, people can pay for their own private education and things like that. Uh, we don't have to go full anarchist right away, and I wouldn't even say that that's the way we should because the government has slowly wormed its way into society. Right, like tree roots going down b below a sidewalk or whatever. If we take it all out right away, it's hard to predict what would happen. Um, and uh, you know, not all not all of us anarchists want chaos and societal collapse. Some some do. <laughs> I'm not one of those. I, uh, some people think worse is better. They think let's let's hasten the demise of society so that the phoenix can rise from the ashes and liberty can finally flourish. I don't see that. The, I don't think that's likely. I think if we have a uh, nuclear war or some societal collapse or some zombie Armageddon, things are going to get worse. So I, I'm in favor of a, a peaceful um, movement, which which I think by the way is possible as we get richer. And we will, I think, if, if the government doesn't kill us with some nuclear war or something. Um, as we get richer, the private sector is going to grow in size relative to the size of the state. So the state will become smaller just by default, I believe, uh, over time. Uh, and people will become more powerful, and they will be able to resist government intrusions that are just nonsense. And when we, uh, as a slight example, we see… I think marijuana is legal or quasi-legal in half of the United States states right now in just a period of 15 or 20 years, which is an amazing development. So we can see things like that happening. So 
people that are leery of anarchy, I, I understand uh, not being comfortable with this brave new world, but let's just try to agree on the worst excesses of the state first and agree to put those out, and then we see where we can go next and next. And maybe we see if we can go further and further and increase freedom and increase our prosperity and reduce the, the damage the state does to us. And we'll see eventually that less and less of it's necessary to what we're, we think is necessary. Uh, this conversation has raised so many important points that I now have a thousand more questions, but I've already monopolized your time for long enough, so I'll just wrap up with a couple of points. One, I, I really think it's important that people reflect on one of the fundamental themes that we've gone back to here is uh, not just the question, what is law, but what is justice? And why do we think that locking someone in a cage or the state locking someone in a cage is justice for a given crime? Uh, maybe there are other ways to conceive of what justice in such a situation would be. And I uh, have pointed to the idea of restorative justice a couple of times in the past. I hope people would look into it, where the idea is not only it, it is not simply uh, restitution to the victim, but also that the victim and the community gets dialogue with the offender in a way that would uh, people could decide what they want to do in this case. What is the best way for the community to deal with this particular offense? I mean, that's that's again, it's such a foreign concept to people um, dealing only in the retributive justice system that exists now that uh, I think it's, it bears repeating and, and cogitating on. But finally, let me just slake my own curiosity. Um, I, when we're talking about law, the, the concept of the law and how it's arrived at through uh, various processes, whether the, 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 the civil law or the private law versus the statute law, how do we, um, is, are, are we thinking, for example, that there is something, there is the law that exists out there that judges and, judges and lawyers and other legal scholars are somehow arriving at through a process of discovery, like, for example, the obvious example, natural law is discovered through a process, or is it something that's being constructed um, by humans that, that doesn't exist as a thing that's out there? Well, I think it's basically natural law in a certain sense. Um, a lot of people are leery of using that term now because it has connotations. It's associated with, say, Catholic church or, or moral law as espoused by certain religions, um, which deviate from, say, just pure law itself. But uh, – and there are problems with the natural law idea too. If you think of the source of law being what God decrees, even that's a type of decree. But at least you're thinking that God is good, and he has some kind of natural or higher standard of good. Um, so I think that like even even when you have a – say legal positivism is this modern idea that, that the law is posited by the state. It's the idea that law is announced by the state, like legislation, um, and that's what everyone adheres to now. Uh, officially because they're reluctant to say there's a higher law standard, but they implicitly can't get out of that because they can't get away from that. Even your typical Democrat liberal type who challenges um, some decision or, or challenges some case at the Supreme Court, let's say, even Roe versus Wade, which is contentious, the abortion case. When you have some liberals, some feminists screaming about Roe versus Wade and how we cannot overturn uh, a woman's right to choose, they're not just making a constitutional or a textual argument. They're not just saying that 
we're only happen to be in favor of the right to choose because we think it happens to be buried in the Fourth Amendment somewhere. They actually think it's the higher law that they want the law to comply with. So everyone has a normative or, a, or, or, or an ethical view that they think is right and wrong, that they think the law really should be. And they don't want to call that natural law, but that's what natural law is. You can think of the natural law as the template, the kind of higher abstract principles of right and wrong that everyone thinks are sort of naturally correct or they think they have a reason for or that they intuitively prefer. And that's the template that they hold up the positive law to or the law that the state is announced and is enforcing. So. There's this bifurcation in people's minds between what natural law is, and sometimes they'll use a capital L, like the law, and they'll say – like you'll have the old natural law th uh, thinkers say something like uh, a law that's not in compliance with natural law, with the capital L, is no law, capital L at all. What they mean is it's not a just law. So as a libertarian, I simply admit, okay, some things are the law. It's illegal. It's against the law to sell cocaine. It's against the law to evade income tax. But as a libertarian, I think those are incompatible with, say, what our natural rights are uh, It's because they basically use force against people to outlaw some behavior that's not itself a wrong behavior. So the law itself is unjust. So I think we should identify what the law is. You need to know what the law is to stay out of trouble, but then you can d declare – or, or identify some law as unjust law, and you could say that's the law that shouldn't be. So the law that should be the law is basically what the libertarians think of as the non-aggression principle and all the implications from that. Property rights, self-ownership, contract, live and let live, leave each other alone, respect each other's property, and all the ways we, 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 we work that out in legal systems through the contract law, private law, wills and estates, and, and marriage and divorce law, and, and tort law. And even criminal law. Um, so the law should just be the working out in concrete detail of these intuitive principles of justice that we have. And to the extent the government comes in and distorts and corrupts the law with a democratic legislature, uh, democratically elected legislature, they can just sit down and decree the law to be whatever they want. And if they can do that, then what they say, there's no requirement that what they say be just. They can say whatever they want. They can say it's illegal to be Catholic, or it's illegal to be atheist, or it's illegal to be a Buddhist, or or whatever, you know. Um, and that law is the law, but it's not guaranteed to be just anymore because it's not arrived at by a process that's even designed to ensure justice. So I think of the natural law or the moral law as the law that we can arrive at by resort to our our commonly shared intuitions about right and wrong and justice, good and evil, right? Um, and, and our reason. Our reason can help us. That's the set of law that we should think of as a template to compare what the government's doing and what an actual legal system is doing. And to the extent it deviates and is not compatible with it, it's unjust and should be resisted or changed. Well, Stefan, this has been such an incredible conversation that it actually blew my desktop computer's mind. So um, <laughs> congratulations on that. This is the first in many, many years of doing these uh, interviews. But uh, so much to talk about, so much to think about. At least this opens the door to the conversation about law without the state. So I hope there will be some lively discussion in the comment section about this. Before we go, can you uh, direct people to what do you think are some key resources for people who are just dipping their toes into these waters to look at? 
yeah, and I'll, I'll send you a couple of links too. You can put in the show notes if you want. But I have an article, what it means to be an anarcho-capitalist. It's on my website. It's very simple. It kind of goes into what I think it means. Uh, and the bibliography I mentioned by Hans, it's on HansHoppa.com, um, is very good. Um, a bibli- it's an anarcho-capitalist bibliography. Lots of good reading in there. The, uh, Morris and Linda Tannehill, Tannehill have a great book. Um, uh, the Market for Liberty. David Friedman's book, uh, The Machinery of Freedom, is really good. Um, Randy Barnett's The Structure of Liberty has a good chapter on uh, – he calls it imagining a polycentric legal order, but it's it's about anarchy. It's good, and, and Bob Murphy has one called Chaos Theory. So there's lots of works that are very provocative. Uh, Bruce Benson has one called The Enterprise of Law. Oh, a new one that's about three years old is by Gerard Casey. Um, uh, He's an Irish uh, uh, libertarian uh, philosopher who's got an amazing book. I'm trying to remember the name right now. It's his most recent book, and it summarizes in great detail like the Irish anarchist um, um, uh, history for centuries. Uh, And of course, finally, Rothbard's For a New Liberty is great. Uh, that's really a good place to start. He talks about um, uh, ancient Iceland and anarchic systems there. So there's a lot of resources like that, and um, uh, most of those are listed in the, in Hoppe's uh, anarcho-capitalist bibliography. All right, excellent. Well, we're going to leave this conversation here today, but hopefully we can have you on when the technical gremlins have been worked out to further this conversation and perhaps to refresh uh, the, my listeners' memory about intellectual property because I've heard you do dozens and dozens of debates on that subject, and I've never heard you lose one of those debates. <laughs> so I hope we can at least have you on to, to expound on that a little bit more in the future. Anyway, Stefan Kinsella, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, James.